call our teaching series is on the topic of identity. And we've been looking at what makes followers of Jesus unique. If we were to look at someone who follows Jesus, compare that person to another person who chooses not to follow Jesus, what differences would we see? What differences should we see? What makes Christians different? And how is a Christian's belief changing their behavior? Now, before we jump into today's message, um, I can't I can't help myself in this, that the topic today is sexuality. And once again, Pastor Brad has found it on his calendar not to be here. Uh, the last time we spoke about sex, I also was on the calendar to preach, and Pastor Brad found a way to get out of the country. Um, this time, to his defense, he's just out of province, and also he's at a a conference on human sexuality. So, you know, he's making it look a little bit better. You know, maybe, maybe next time he'll actually be the one, the one speaking. Uh, but at that conference, which Brad's in Edmonton this weekend, uh, one of our elders, John Mayer, he was giving, he was presenting at one of the workshops there. And so it's just great that we have people here in our local church uh, that are, are well-read, well-seasoned with this in their story, and, and have done a lot of thinking and praying through this topic. Well, true to form, I generally begin messages with a story, and today is no exception. I grew up in a time when Michael Jackson was the greatest entertainer in the world. I think you can probably say that more as fact than as as theory. I mean, Michael Jackson was the king of pop. He was huge. And I remember when his, his Dangerous CD came out. Uh, not that was the title of it. That's not the description of it. Uh, but yeah, it had a number of huge hits, and and he was huge. And I remember the 1993 Super Bowl. Strangely enough, not more for the game, but for the halftime performance. Michael Jackson performed, and in my opinion, it still remains as the greatest halftime show ever. It was it was incredible. You can still YouTube it and watch it if you want to. Maybe you'll be doing it uh, this afternoon. But. Even more than that, in the year 1993, I think this was a couple of of weeks even after the Super Bowl, Oprah Winfrey had a huge interview with Michael Jackson. Do you guys remember this? This is back when Oprah Winfrey went by two names. And and here she is on the left. That has to be the most awkward promotional photo I've ever seen of the two of them. And on the right is is actually part of the interview. I, I remember that. They actually sat on his practice stage. And, and he did a little bit of dancing. I mean, I remember as a kid, I knew who Michael Jackson was. I didn't know a ton about him. I knew that he made music, and I, and I liked a good amount of it. I knew that for whatever reason, he wore one glove on his hand and sometimes did the hat thing. But by far, the coolest thing he did was the moonwalk. And I remember in the show, he actually does the moonwalk a little bit, and he's, he's very simplistic about it. Oh, I just do this, you know, and he just kind of does it, and you're like, whoa, that was amazing. How did he do that? But more than anything, what I remember about this event was the promotion of it. And I don't, I don't remember how, how often it was promoted on TV, if this was leaked, or if they do what they do now where they have the interviewer ask a question and they use, you know, they just kind of don't give the person's response. But I remember that Oprah was going to ask Michael Jackson if he was a virgin. Do you guys remember this? Any head nods here? Or am I on my own island here? No one remembers this. Okay, well, I looked it up this week. It's true, okay? So 
This is huge, right? He's going to ask, she's going to ask Michael Jackson, are you, an inter- uh, are you a virgin? In this interview, Michael Jackson did no interviews 14 years up to this point. So like all of the 80s, early 90s, he's done all these hits. He isn't talking to anyone. And now Oprah's going to talk to him for an hour. And one of the questions she's going to ask him is about his sexuality. Very intriguing. Now, I, I remember this moment, and, and this is a little bit embarrassing, I guess, but I remember having a conversation with one of my friends about this. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, wait a second. We're two boys? Why are we talking about Oprah interviewing Michael Jackson and asking about his virginity? Like, seriously. But to my defense, okay, to my defense, one, this was a time when big, big songs on the radio were just starting to come out. I'm too sexy. Let's talk about sex. Okay, Michael Jackson now, that is one of my case in points as an excuse, okay? Another one is, I'm thinking here, and I might be making this up, but, but you know what? The only, maybe it just happened that we were hanging out, and we just finished playing Nintendo, and we turned off the Nintendo when it went on TV, and then we were trading baseball cards and doing macho things, and then, and then the, the promotion came up for the interview, right? That's kind of how I'm rationalizing why we were even talking about uh, this subject, But what I remember most, and this actually gets to the point of this story here, what I remember was turning to my friend in his living room and saying, the only reason why Michael Jackson may not want to ask or answer Oprah Winfrey's question is because he may have to say that he's not a virgin. And I remember my friend very quickly saying, no, the reason he may not want to answer that question is because he is a virgin. And it was at that moment where I realized, whoa, wait a second. My understanding of sex is very different than my friend's perception of sex. I knew what my parents would think. I knew what our church would think if Michael Jackson uh, said, no, I'm, I'm an unmarried man, and of course I'm not a virgin. But that was very different than what I was anticipating and very different response Uh, than what people that I knew about would talk about in that subject. There's a a musician, a country musician by the name of Butch Hancock, and he once said, Life in Lubbock, Texas taught me that sex is the most awful, filthy thing on earth, and you should save it for someone you love. Now, his comment is a perfect example of what many people feel. A confusing divide between what they've been told and what makes sense to them. This, this disconnection between what they've been taught and then what they've experienced. And it leaves lots of people feeling confused, bitter, jaded, even quite angry at times. And this topic of sexuality is unique because while it's certainly mysterious and it's very confusing... It's talked about in all different talks of, of, of life. Like, we talk about sex pretty much in every capacity of our life. And yet, when we talk about sex, we have this desire to throw distortions of sex into the conversation. We lie about sex quite a bit. Lauren Winner is an author who has written a book called Real Sex. And in her book, she writes, The problem is not that we talk about sex. The problem is how we talk about sex. So much of what we say about sex is wrong, deceptive, distorted, misleading. This matters because the way we talk about sex reflects and forms the way we think about and ultimately the way we practice sex. 
Now, I can't help but think that Butch Hancock's comment about sex is fueled because he felt like he was lied to. Growing up, he was told one thing. He was told about what it was like, how he would feel, what it was all about. And then when it came his own time to engage and to experience that, it was much different. And he felt deceived. I mean, how can sex possibly be awful and dirty? And if it is, then why in the world would you save it for the one that you would marry, the one that you would love, the one that theoretically you're going to spend the rest of your life with? And if sex isn't this terrible and awful thing, then why not enjoy it whenever you want to and with whoever you want to? You see, these questions aren't just asked by teenagers. They're asked by mature adults, married ones, singled ones, divorced ones, church-following ones, Jesus-loving ones, people-in-denial adults as well. They're not new questions either. People have asked questions like these and practiced all sorts of sexual behavior for thousands of years. The question is, and according to our... our wow, excuse me here. We have got a, a bum uh, folder here. The question is really, how would a follower of Jesus answer these questions? In keeping with our series... If we're looking at a person who has a Christian identity, how would a follower of Jesus respond to these questions? Thanks, Mike. My guess is that this topic is relevant for many of us because we identify ourselves as Christians. We identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, as people who have chosen to abandon our own self-interest and follow the teachings of Christ. This message, I would hope, will affirm what you've already been convinced of. But I think this message is just as relevant for those listening today who aren't currently following Jesus. This should help you understand why Christians believe what they believe and why they do what they do, even if it doesn't align with what you personally believe, even if your thoughts are completely different from those of a Christian worldview. Now, we could begin our search for answers pretty much anywhere, but this topic over, because this topic, I mean, it, it spans so many different spheres. We could talk about sexual ethics or morality or relationships or risk management or physical health. And all of these factors are, are appropriate here in this discussion. But if we're really attempting to discover what sex means for a Christian, we'll start with teaching from a letter that comes to Christians by a Christian leader, the Apostle Paul. He writes a letter to a church in a city called Corinth. And much of his letter is about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. And this city, Corinth, was quite the city. It was known as a place of lawlessness. Now, this doesn't mean that the place was filled with a whole bunch of criminals. It basically just means there weren't a whole lot of laws laws there to convict people of being criminals. It was an incredibly free society. And the Greeks coined a phrase to refer to people's immorality in this city. It's translated as to live a Corinthian life, which I'm guessing probably holds the same wink-wink, nudge-nudge response when people say, well, what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so I think there are some parallels for what you and I know about society from here in Langley and in North America in general to what this ancient city of Corinth understood and how they lived. If we're to be a bit more blunt, Corinth was known as a city of sexual liberty and prostitution. There was a lot of sexual freedom with little consequence and with even less conscience about it. 
prostitution was not only legal, it was viewed as an accepted form of entertainment. So in other words, sex was casual. Casual sex is a phrase that most of us use. We have an understanding of what it means and, and, and who would live within those, those spheres. It's this understanding that we can have people that we engage with in a physical sexual relationship with other commitments that aren't necessarily there. It's the idea of having friends with so-called benefits. It can mean sex with pretty much no relationship at all. It's a reality in our world, and it's actually pretty hard to be unaware of this reality in our world. And Paul seems to be aware of the reality here in the Corinthian world. He lived in Corinth for a while. He knew the Corinthian church quite well. But while many people will change their personal values to align with the values of their society and in their neighborhood, Paul gives a very different message to his readers. He has no message that says, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Instead of embracing the social norms of his day, Paul creates sexual boundaries. He makes no distinction between casual sex, sex between engaged couples, or sex between widowed adults. Each time, his response is the same. No. The question is why? Why would Paul teach this? In his book called Sex for Christians, Lewis Smedes admits that if Paul gets any support from his teaching from the Old Testament, it's shaky at best. He says the Old Testament concept, the Jewish or Hebrew concept of sexuality, was actually quite different. What we see here is a high premium on female virginity, but male virginity wasn't really all that important, at least from a number of the teachings that we have. Maybe this is why there's a history of women being called different names than men for their promiscuity. Harsh words to women, and strangely enough, affirming words to men. And what's intriguing about how female virginity is viewed in the Old Testament is that it seems to be most important for social purposes. Women aren't supposed to remain virgins until they're married just to remain virgins. It has a social component to it. If a woman was found to have sex before marriage, the community had social obligations that they would undertake. And the usual outcome was a marriage, which I I guess now we have a phrase for that. It was known as a shotgun wedding, right? Because the father grabbed a shotgun and boom, wedding bells are going to happen. But what's, I mean, this is so hard for us to kind of comprehend in in our mentality now. But really what was at stake here was almost, almost like property damage. In other words, a man had, had slept with a woman before she was married and she was a virgin. And the father of that woman then said, well, now what am I to do? Here is my daughter, and she is no longer the pure virgin that I can then get a dowry from. So the social community kind of uh, took action, and that man would then pay a dowry to his now father-in-law. That would be some awkward dinner conversations later on, I'm guessing. And then that woman would then become his wife. That was kind of the only legitimate way that they had to, to to bring some resolution to this situation. Prostitution did exist, but it certainly was not a legitimate sphere back in those days. And so as Lewis Smedes explains in his books, he says, unmarried sex violated the command against stealing as clearly as it did the command against adultery. Now, it's laws such as these that can give people the impression that sex really is this terrible, awful, unspoken activity that really should be avoided. But really, when you look at the collective story, it's understood as 
shameful only when it happens outside of marriage. Within marriage, sex is celebrated quite tremendously, as books such as the Song of Song certainly attest to. But what's interesting now is if we look at the New Testament, the topic is approached in a much different way, a very different perspective. The writers in the New Testament, they use a different word, and the word that they use kind of is a huge, broad word that encompasses all types of sexual misconduct. And the boundaries become the same for both men and women. Gender seems irrelevant in this situation. The Greek word that's used to describe sexual immorality is pornea. And it's translated in our English Bibles, if you've got a contemporary one, it's going to be translated as sexual immorality. If you have an older English translation, it's probably translated as fornication. And without looking at every instance in this word, we can basically summarize the teaching by saying that pornea is described as a sinful action. It means that intercourse by unmarried people is sin. But what actually makes it wrong? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to it at this point. It's also going to appear up on the screens for you to follow along as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're looking at the middle of the chapter in verses 13 to 17. Paul says, the body's not meant for pornea. That's that Greek word. It's not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, and Paul goes back to the Genesis story, he quotes this story here, and he says, It is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. As I was saying, it was not uncommon for a Corinthian to visit a prostitute. It was acceptable social behavior. It was just casual sex. Not uncommon at all. But what Paul says is extremely uncommon. He says that when a man visits a prostitute, he links himself to her in a way that actually unites the two of them together. And that word unites is really the key word in this passage. It literally means to glue together. The man and the woman are then bounded together because of that sexual intimacy that they experienced together. According to what Paul says, it doesn't matter if either person intends to be united during this time. Intention is completely irrelevant. It's not about what they wish, what they want, what they've agreed to. It's what their action does by its design. And sexual intercourse is designed to unite. And so this is the rationale. This is why sex is inappropriate in every instance outside of marriage. Sex is a physical expression of relational permanence. Or to say it the way that Lewis Smedes has, intercourse signs and seals a life union, and life union means marriage. So this is Paul's explanation. And Paul's explanation has formed the historic interpretation of sexual morality within the Christian faith. It's an interpretation that's been challenged by many people. It's an interpretation that's been reinterpreted and reapplied by others. And it's been completely ignored by other people. But this view of sexuality remains authoritative and affirmed by our church family here at Jericho Ridge. And my guess is that for many of us, this view of sexuality 
is nothing new. You probably have heard this before. Maybe you could have even explained it a little bit better than I have. But even if, if you have this understanding, the question really is, uh, do we still have other questions about this? And how does this really relate to our lives? Which is why I want to close the book of 1 Corinthians for a while and return to the topic of how our understanding of sex can be greatly distorted. Now, it's easy to point fingers at the entertainment industry, the advertising industry, the triple X industry, and say, well, obviously we have gross uh, distortions happening here. Our society as as a whole throws around lies, makes it so difficult, and that's why we have so much struggles with this. We might even go a little bit further and singer out smaller groups and say, well, uh, maybe it's this particular education system that's happened or this political group that's, that's trying to educate our children in one way or another. But I think there's plenty of other distortions that lie closer to home. Some distortions that perhaps some of us have bought into ourselves. Maybe you've heard them from a parent growing up. Maybe you've even heard them from a respectable Christian or a pastor in your past. Maybe these are, are impressions that you have then passed on to other people as well, as a little bit a, as a warning or perhaps to scare people into do, doing something that you think is more beneficial. And I'm sure that people who have said these things had good intentions in mind, but they're falsehoods nonetheless, and they leave people feeling just as confused. In Lauren Winner's book, she addresses a lie that might get brushed off now, but it's done plenty of damage. It's the idea that a person who engages in sex outside of marriage is guaranteed to feel bad about it. It's the idea that when someone crosses the line and and interacts in some sort of sexual relationships outside of of marriage, they're going to feel guilty. They're going to feel dirty. They're going to feel terrible about it. Kind of with this impulse of saying, well, don't do that then, because only bad things are going to happen. Now, I think this is probably true for many people in their story, that, that when they, they chose to engage in that activity, they did feel terrible about it. But there's lots of other people who feel completely indifferent about it. And there's others who even are thrilled of their experience. Whenever a person finds that their behavior doesn't leave them feeling badly, it becomes easy for them to justify their actions. Which is why I really don't find it surprising anymore when an unmarried person speaks with little remorse about their sexual escapades. And why I'm not shocked when a spouse justifies infidelity with a statement like, well, how can something that feels so right be wrong? When people experience something that's much different than what they've been told, it leaves them feeling disillusioned. But as Winner points out, she says, the plain sad fact is that we do not always feel bad after we do something wrong. To acknowledge that sexual immorality, or any sinful fact for that matter, sinful act, excuse me, for that matter, might feel good is not to say that it is good. It is rather to say that our feelings are not always trustworthy. That question of what is trustworthy is a good one. It's crucial to our understanding of sexuality. What's more trustworthy? Our feelings? Our desires? God's command? God's design? What's worth putting your trust in? Sexual distortion begins at the point when we assume there's something better for us than what God has designed for us. 
and the distortion that you and I encounter every day and that's so easy to buy into and accept is not only that sex isn't sacred, it's that sex can actually be casual. But a person whose identity is aligned with the teachings of Jesus will realize that sex can't ever be casual. It's a contradiction of terms. It might seem casual, it might even feel casual, but it is, in fact, always profound. A Christian will echo the words of Lewis Smedes, there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. Sex is never casual. Sex is never casual. It's not casual when things escalate beyond what someone intended. It's not sexual when, or excuse me, it's not casual when newlyweds consummate their marriage. It's not casual when a husband and wife unite themselves, even when there isn't as much passion as there used to be. It's not casual when a man increases his tally mark with a woman whose name he can't even remember. Sex is never casual. It's never casual because it was never intended and designed to be casual. It might feel casual, but it can't be. So says the people who choose to accept the teachings and authority of the Bible. Now, we can all choose. We can all choose what we want to believe and how we want to live. You can choose to believe whatever you want to about sex. You can practice whatever sexual behavior you would like to. But it still won't change how the creator of sex designed it. And it won't change what followers of Christ are taught about sexuality. Sex is never casual. But here's the beautiful thing about this discussion. Your past can be full of sexual mistakes and immorality of every kind, and yet Jesus still wants to be your friend and forgive you for all of it. It doesn't matter if your sexual history is as pure as snow or as dark as night. God sent Jesus to the world to rescue us from all of our sin that so easily trips us up. And all we have to do is let him. So if you've never, to chose, if you've never chosen to visit Jesus today, today is a great chance to do that. It doesn't mean that your past will be erased. It doesn't mean that consequence of your past actions, whether they're sexual in nature or of another kind, are just going to instantaneously be eliminated. There are natural consequences to what we do. But what it does mean is that if we confess our sins, Jesus will redeem us, and he'll begin to restore us and adopt us as his own, which is a much better identity than any of us can make for ourselves. So if you want to talk more about what it means to bring about change in your life, what it means to make a decision to follow Jesus, then please, I hope you'll speak with me after our gathering time together, and we can talk more about that as well. But before we end our time together, I want us to be reminded of God's rescue plan for us. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came to save it and to redeem it. He came to take us as we are and to make us into beautiful things who will live out God's glory. And so instead of singing a song of response today, we're actually going to listen to a song of response. It's a song called Beautiful Things.